Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too. Like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H E L P. Maybe it's like a Russia Jonas Brothers concert, which I didn't even know was a thing you could do. Of course. This is my favorite album that they're doing tomorrow. A little bit longer, the best album ever written. Right. Pray for Phoebe, y'all. She needs Jonas Brothers tickets. Se- she needs a second them. set of Jonas Brothers <laughs> tickets. Oh my god. Welcome to Monster Donut, your favorite literary and historical deep dive of the Percy <laughs> Jackson series and all of its following spinoffs. I am Emily, a classic scholar-ish and writer, and I am joined today uh, by none other than my co-host, uh, Phoebe, yeah. who is a great dramaturg and occasional emotional support icon. That's all a dramaturg is. Um, this is our series wrap-up where we're going to be talking about the series as a whole and also respond to some of the thoughts on the series and questions that you all sent in to us which thank you if you sent those in or if you didn't thank you for listening to us the fact that you've made it this far with us is um we're very grateful so to kick us off um i actually went back through and re-listened to everything that um, we talked about and I made a list of a few different discussion topics that I feel like I just like really want to like continue talking about that I think uh, there's more to say on and as we go as well there may be some questions that have been asked or analyses um, y'all submitted that are relevant to what we're talking about so we'll kind of answer those as we go and uh, yeah it should be pretty fun yeah um, so Emily's going to guide us through that because I have no idea what she's about to throw at me because I didn't re-listen to anything <laughs> Well, you did edit them, so you've listened to them all probably more than I've ever Oh, so many times. <laughs> so I've broken them up into different topics um, overall. So to that end, I feel like I kind of want to make us go full circle a bit by coming back to one of the first topics we started to really dig into in our first episode, which is the relationship between glory, fate, and agency. So I think in our first episode, we were also talking about storytelling as a major device for achieving fame. And I think that was like the main way we were talking about it. So I'm curious, like how the interplay Mm. has developed between like literal immortality and storytelling immortality. 
because there's so many different ways immortality comes up in this series from characters who are able to literally earn it through gifts of the gods characters who are literally immortal because they are gods characters who are able to steal it in some way shape or form like daedalus or sisyphus or characters who are able to earn it not physically but metaphorically through heroic deeds like, I want to dig into how this series kind of treats it as a whole now that we can kind of come full circle on it and really see how it's played through. I think immortality in this series, like literal immortality, is almost treated like once you achieve it, you are never going to change. Like, there's this idea that you're you're stuck once you're immortal mm-hmm. in whatever state you're in. Like, I'm thinking specifically of, well, Thalia and the Hunters, like, literally, but Yuritian, because he talks about, like, how he's been stuck in this job ever since he took immortality and like he thought it was going to be better once he became immortal but now he's just this for forever or like percy when he's offered it he's offered the position of like poseidon's lieutenant and he'd just be his lieutenant for eternity and he doesn't want that yeah and it's this idea that once you take immortality you are just that for forever it becomes over time this thing that you probably don't want but now like i'm thinking it through now (laughs) i'm thinking the whole thought and it's like the idea of having your story told and everything you're still gonna be stuck in a way it's just not physically it'll like change over over time as people tell it more often and then it just won't be your story anymore (laughs) i mean i do think though here's the thing the stories do adapt like i feel like this is something that's come up a lot as well the adaptability of story and myth is something that's like really i wouldn't say explored more like shown in this series yeah and it's something like we talked about a little bit when we talked about the mystery cults as well of like being able to transition and like take different pieces of things and modernize them i feel like like most people's touched on for example of the myth of achilles now is song of achilles by madeline miller which is an amazing book but she made choices and decisions in her adaptation to tell a specific story that she wanted to tell that i think is very much in line with the iliad but it's not the iliad and again she's a classic she's like an actual classics professor like she's an actual classics scholar and so all of the information she has and everything is like accurate and yet at the same time you know it's a different story and it's saying something that i think feels timeless to us now but ultimately is of our time because that was when it was created but in that way i feel like you are kind of able to grow and change in a way that i feel like a lot of the characters and monsters in the percy jackson universe aren't so that's kind of an interesting point because i feel like part of the problem with the monsters is what gives them away like they do sort of adapt but they always have tells and giveaways and they always sort of default to like who they were in mythology and the way they're Mm -hmm. defeated is the same like they're always kind of the same but with different window dressing whereas with storytelling and like having a legacy as a form of immortality i feel like is the the version of immortality that this series is uh what's the word backing (laughs) because you know that's annabeth at the end she gets to redesign olympus and like have her her sort of dream of having built something that's gonna stand there for forever and like luke at the end getting to have the last word by getting percy to basically ask for what what he wanted in the end almost creating a legacy we'll see how that plays out in the next two series but he did get the gods to promise that and that's that's a part of his legacy and percy's a storyteller oh you know what's interesting is that while we're talking about percy being a storyteller we did get one question about or not a question but an analysis about percy being an unreliable narrator 
Oh, yeah. Which, when you're trying to build your legacy, is a really interesting. <laughs> okay, this is from Layla. Leela? They said, I was listening to your guys' recent episode, the one covering the stolen chariot and the bronze dragon, and something that Phoebe mentioned was how there's a moment where Percy doesn't let us into his thoughts. And I think it's one of the first times the reader is clued into the fact that maybe Percy isn't exactly the most trustworthy narrator, other than those moments in the Battle of the Labyrinth where he's completely misreading Luke's facial expressions, but even then, we just trust him and chalk it up to his bias clouding his judgment, not him keeping things from us. But I went back to all the very brutal things he does in the earlier books, and literally all of them just have him narrating his actions, but not his thoughts on it. Like in The Lightning Thief, when he chops Procrusty's head off, he doesn't really say anything about how he's feeling or thinking about it, he just kind of moves on, and so do we. And I think that's so interesting because it makes sense that Rick wouldn't want to write long, introspective think pieces on the morality of killing a living being in a children's book. And then that led me to look at the action sequences, and I realized how little Percy actually narrates during those scenes. Kind of like he's hiding a lot of the violence he does from us, and that's all backed up by the Heroes of Olympus series, where everyone and their mother is like, that Percy dude is terrifying. It is an interesting question of like how much of it is because of the genre, because of the narrative voice required of a children's author, and how much of it is... Percy specifically avoiding, or even avoiding his own thoughts on... On it, it occurs doing. to me something interesting to compare it would be in the next series when we get other people's points of view. Yeah. I think we're going to talk about this a lot in the House of Hades because that's... Oh, half of that episode is going to be us talking about that scene. Because, like, no, it's not just that scene. It's that, like, we do get to see Percy do these, like, brutal things from Annabeth's perspective. <laughs> well, I feel like it's an interesting point, too. Because if you think about the way, like, you tell a story about something bad that happened to you, that someone wronged you doing, and compare it to the version they tell... You can both, there are scenarios in which you can both 100% believe the version you're telling and they contradict. There are versions when the facts can even remain the same, but your interpretations of like people's facial expressions or your interpretations of how they phrase things. All of that to say is I think Percy believes he's a reliable narrator. It's not intentional. I do think, you know, we're always cognizant of how we paint ourselves. And I do feel like there's a certain expectation that you know, most people will catch on if you never talk about your insecurities or you never let anyone in, but you're also never going to show the worst of yourself unless you can find a way to redeem it. Yeah, which is part of why I think the stuff in Heroes of Olympus is so interesting because I feel like none of it's his choice because it's all in third person. Mm. <laughs> like he yeah. can't stop the, the narrator from telling you what he's thinking and what he's doing. But I, I think... Well, we know for a fact that Percy does, at least when he's telling stories to his mom, he says multiple times that he's lying to her. Like, he he doesn't tell her the, the full truth because he doesn't want her to worry mm. and doesn't want her to know all the things that he's been doing. And so it's like, why wouldn't that extend to us? <laughs> we know he does it. But, like, it's like, this is where he gets to tell his story. So this is what he's, like, leaving behind at the end of the day. Who knows for what reason? I don't think we've even answered that question that I asked in the first episode of, like, yeah. why did, why is he ch telling his story at all? But this is what he's leaving behind, and it's an unreliable account at times. Let's do some questions. Um, let's see. What do we have here? We were sort of just talking about with creating your own immortality through, like, creating a legacy for yourself. We were sort of talking about the scene in Sea of Monsters 
with Annabeth explaining that she wants to create like a new New York City and that her fatal flaw is hubris and all that. And we did get a question from Maya who asked, upon rereading that scene stuck out to her as an interesting character moment for Annabeth because it shows a lot of self-awareness on her end and willingness to evaluate her flaws, especially at 13 years old, when I feel like that's quite rare for kids. My question is, how do you think Annabeth figured out what her fatal flaw was? Do you think she realized it independently or someone else told her? And if so, who did? I guess you could also read that scene as her discovering slash naming her fatal flaw for the first time after seeing the siren's vision, but I've always read it at, like she already knew what it was and this scene just confirmed it for her. Thanks. I feel like I agree. Like I, I got the feeling when I was reading it that she already knew. Yeah, yes. I, I feel like Annabeth's the type to like, you know, be reading these old myths and like be trying to figure out like I, she's the kind of kid who'd be like if she were living in our world be like I gotta figure out which cabin I'm in <laughs> like, <laughs> and so I feel like looking back at the myth she's like I have to figure out what my fatal flaw is just like all these heroes so I could see her figuring it out for herself just by like being very introspective and thinking about it <laughs> yeah because I'm thinking about it like looking at her and where she, and like her upbringing with her family in particular you know, I feel like she has experienced a lot of rejection in her life. And that's like a common trait, I think, with also being a neuro neurodivergent kid. It's just harder to socialize a lot of the time. And and beyond that, like that's all speculation. But we know for a fact that with her family, especially, and her step-siblings and her stepmom, she had a really hard time connecting with them. And I feel like for someone like her, her response to that would probably be to be very introspective and to be very self evaluative when she was first trying to make things work so it makes sense to me that she would have a really strong understanding of herself and her own flaws and that having been something that happened before she ran away and I feel like also being raised in the environment at camp with Chiron as her primary mentor like I'm sure Chiron talks all the time about heroes fatal flaws so I think you're right there too where he would have mentioned it and her first thought would have been well what's mine yeah I'm now imagining like a little Annabeth at camp being like, hey, Luke, I think I figured out what your fatal flaw is. <laughs> Luke sweating nervously. <laughs> what? Like just trying to psychoanalyze everyone around. <laughs> I have a question from an anonymous listener from Tumblr <laughs> who asked, seriously, what is Percy's fatal flaw? And they're guessing wrath. And then they also asked, is Chiron good at his job or does he need to be fired? <laughs> um, yes. I answer to the second question. Yeah. The answer to the second question is, I believe Chiron is one step above the gods in terms of being a good parent. And boy, that bar is low. <laughs> okay, so the answer to the first part is no. And does he need to be fired? Yes. <laughs> The answer to the, the actual first question, though, what is Percy's fatal flaw? At this point, what do I want to say? What what were the contenders that we've come up with? It was Wrath. What Athena said, but she said she was wrong, so. And I think we did talk a little bit about him wanting power. Yes. Because for a lot of his life was fairly powerless. And not power in a, like, political sense. In a personal sense, and that he, like, wants control over his own existence yeah and he just enjoys feeling powerful and that messes him up a lot i feel like the best way to approach this is to think of moments because a fatal flaw is obviously something that gets you in serious trouble 
I feel like a few of those moments in the narrative are acknowledged as such whenever he challenges a god to a sword fight. I mean, that's a big part of it. Like, the wrath and, like, lack of control over his own anger. Mm. These are almost kind of the same flaw in some ways. Yeah. The, like, lack of control. Because that's what really gets him in trouble. It's more like the seeking power and everything. Or enjoying his own power. I mean, it is what lands him in those situations, but what, like escalates them to fatal is the fact that he can't control himself yeah it's like a lack of self-control maybe that's what it is just generally a lack of self-control <laughs> yeah because the moments that the moments that stand out to me are in battle of the labyrinth are it's the cleaning the stables and then mount saint helens so yeah i don't know if i would say wrath or lack of self-control at this point i kind of want to say lack of self-control just because like that relates to the the wrath thing and the power thing. That's what I'm going to say it is right now in, in this episode. Maybe we'll bring, come back to this question in our Heroes of Olympus wrap up. Oh, we will. If we want to keep talking like Percy personality things, mm. we did get a message, uh, another anonymous one on Tumblr, who said, I was thinking about the whole Percy doesn't give any information about himself slash never shares. And how the only time he really did was when he was with Clarice, which may have been a testament to their beautiful blossoming friendship, but I think was also in part as a way to help comfort her. And I think there could be a possible number of reasons why Percy doesn't share, except to comfort, arguably. But I was wondering what your take on that was. Like, if you think he's just a naturally reserved person, slash doesn't see the need to, slash insecurities, or if you think it's something else, and what your thoughts on it are. Feel free to ignore this smiley face. <laughs> <laughs> I love MDP, which I've never seen someone shorten our name like that. And so I enjoyed that. I was like, oh, MDP, is that what we are? <laughs> so yeah, I do think that Percy is a naturally reserved person, generally, especially in the earlier books. Like he's very in his own head and like tends to keep things to himself. I think he's he's just naturally like that. It's not not wanting other people to know what's going on in his head. Because I'm thinking of the scenes where we've kind of complained that Percy hasn't shared something. And it's like a lot of the scenes with Thalia, some of the scenes with Annabeth. It's not like he doesn't put in the work to make them feel comfortable enough to share. He just does it in a way where he doesn't share himself. It's just that we, the, we, the readers, know there's so much more to say. Although it does get in the way of comforting Annabeth that he doesn't share anything because... Then she feels like he doesn't understand anything. And like, if he would just tell her, then... <laughs> yeah. I don't know. It's almost like he doesn't put together that like what he's going through is even related to what other people are going through. Yeah. Like the thought of like telling them something rarely crosses his mind. Almost as if he thinks that it's like not relevant. I don't think it comes down to insecurities. I think it's like naturally being someone who doesn't think about these things at all it, it also might just be like for him sharing information is not how he feels closer to people so it's not necessarily something he thinks about as like an exchange like i think he's a very action-based person so i feel like going through things with people and like sticking by them and like hanging out with them and being around them that's how he forms his bonds generally emotions he just doesn't talk about them i think he I like he doesn't talk about his experiences either like i can't there's so many times when percy's like gone off to do something people are like what did what what just happened and he's like i don't know he like has trouble <laughs> even just like processing what happens to him like day to day 
You know what? It's like you know, we were just saying that Annabeth is a very introspective person and would have been the type to like figure out her fatal flaw because she thought about it so hard. And like Percy still like the reason <laughs> the reason that we have this question is because Percy has no clue what his actual fatal flaw is. <laughs> I think that's what it is. It's like Percy just, exists like, on vibes and impulse. He's not fully thinking through the things that he's feeling and mm -hmm. so isn't able to verbalize them in any way. Yeah. Even if it would be helpful, even if he wanted to, which I don't think he totally wants to. But I do think with Clarice, it's possible that he kind of gets the sense that she is nev she's never going to give if he doesn't give in return. I, maybe it's that he's seen somebody who he does feel like would kind of implicitly understand him in a different way because of what he's seen with her and her upbringing with Aries. Um, I also think it's like one of those moments where he's actually perceiving that Clarice does need to hear this from him. Like that's yeah. what's going to help her most. And what's going to help them most is for her to hear what Percy went through. Maybe with Clarice, he's seen so much that he knows he shouldn't have that he's starting to feel like he needs to give her something back in return. Yeah, maybe that's it, because she didn't share any of that with him. Yeah, like none of that was voluntary, and so now it's like, well, I gotta give her something. <laughs> yeah. For now, let's do one more question. Rosie asked, I was wondering about how you mentioned the original quote-unquote myth of Theseus and the labyrinth a few times in the Battle of the Labyrinth episode. What do you mean by that? Original as in the oldest recorded version, or most commonly known version, or as opposed to modern retellings. I can speak for myself because it's a very basic answer, and then you can explain <laughs> what, you, what you mean. Because uh -huh. for me, when I say original myth, I mean what I learned in my myth and Bible class, or from the Dolores. What is it? What is, is it Dolores? I pronounce it Dolores, but I could be wrong. I think it's French, so it's Dolores. Whatever. The Dolores book of uh, Greek myths. I've read some of the like Ovid. I've read a couple of the old plays uh, because I work in theater. I've seen a couple of the old plays. So like that's that's my original. I don't know if I'm, I'm sure none of them are the original, but. Yeah, for me, I think I'm the same. I grew up on the that book of Greek mythology. That was kind of like my main touchstone and main source for a really long time. But if you want to know an actual answer to this question. <laughs> I can also maybe provide a little more insight into that because it is a really interesting question of like, where do these myths come from? How do we know what's quote unquote canon and how do we know what's not? How do we know like when these myths came about, where they came from, et cetera, et cetera. So for me, um, the reason why over the course of this podcast, I've cited a few different sources, like the Homeric hymns, for example, and the Iliad and the Odyssey, is because those specifically are the oldest texts we have on Greek mythology written in Greek. So uh, Iliad and the Odyssey, and there's a few other works like um, the Shield of uh, Heracles, also the Homeric hymns, which I think I've explained before, are basically a series of kind of shorter myths, like the hymn to Demeter is the story of Hades and Persephone, the hymn to Apollo is the story of him slaying Python, the hymn to Dionysus is the story of him turning all those sailors into dolphins. The hymn to Hermes is the story of him stealing the cows of Apollo. So a lot of them are very like basic texts of like origin stories of a lot of the gods. But those also range in date. So some of the oldest Homeric hymns date as old or older than the Iliad and the Odyssey. 
Um, but there are some that date all the way up to Roman times because they're for Roman gods. So depending on which myths are in the collection, they might range. But the kind of big three, if you will, of super ancient mythic texts are those what I just talked about and the works of Hesiod, who uh, was also writing in the kind of Homeric dialect, which is a specific writing style. He wrote two works, one called Works and Days, which is a text about farming. So it's kind of a how-to guide on farming. And um, he also wrote another work called The Theogony, which is kind of um, the story of like the genesis of the world. And it, it has all of that like stuff with like Gaia and Uranus and all that fun stuff. And then the other like main Greek source of texts we have dates to like 180-ish BC. And his name's Apollodorus. He basically went around and tried to create a composite of all of the mythology. But what's kind of interesting about it is because, as I think I mentioned in a prior episode, a lot of these myths are very like local. And so his work is really interesting because you can see like every single line. There's like a three for every line of story. There's like three additional lines being like, but in this town, they tell it this way. But in this town, they tell it this way. Or like, this is a different version of this, which is one of the reasons why the question of like original is so difficult to answer because so many of these stories did not spring up from one source that we can identify. Also, because we've lost access to so many of the like or more original Greek texts, we also have a lot of sources that have to come from the Romans because they would have had access to way more texts than we would have in the ancient world. So the short version is there is no such thing as an original myth. The long version is when in doubt, trust Homer and Hesiod. But the Theseus story in particular first appears, I believe, in Apollodorus. Speaking of which, though, something that we kind of kept circling back to that I feel like we never fully developed into a thought was this idea of when are the characters repeating myths and when are they kind of taking them into their own hands? So I think that's something that like just, again, so much of these books are replaying stories or at least re-encountering a lot of the same monsters as heroes have. So I'm curious if, is there something there? Is there something the text is trying to say about this? Yeah, I think the further into the series we get, the fewer times there are where they play a myth straight. I think that's why the Clarice and Selena scene stands out so much is because mm. like the rest of that book just isn't replaying any of the myths so mm. clearly. And same with I can't I can't think of a moment in Battle of the Labyrinth where he or where anyone like completely replays a myth. Battle of the Labyrinth is full of moments where people like they see the way that the myth goes and then are like I'm not doing that. And it's it stands out because in the first book, we did have a lot of replaying, like with Procrustes and Medusa. And so over the course of the series, it's sort of them breaking out of that mold that they're expected. You know, like the heroes are expected to do certain things by the gods. When Hermes gives the quest to Luke, it's literally to replay that yeah. one Hercules myth. And so over time, it's them kind of breaking free of that expectation that the gods have set for them to the point where when you actually play it straight it feels shocking yeah i was thinking as well with sea of monsters in scylla and charybdis i think clarice plays it the same way odysseus does and it doesn't go well for them like annabeth plays circe's island the same way odysseus does but there's a bit more like 
cleverness in her version, I think, than Odysseus is. Because Odysseus literally has Hermes being like, here's a flower that will dispel enchantment. Like, Annabeth has to kind of figure out the vitamins are the key. Hmm. She has to be a lot scrappier with her resources. And I think part of what makes, like, Clarice in Sea of Monsters frustrating is that she does keep trying to play it a lot straighter, even inadvertently. Like, Odysseus gets his shipwrecked in the Odyssey because he keeps taunting Polyphemus. And Polyphemus chucks a rock at him and breaks his ship. So that is interesting that you say that Clarice Silena is like the only time played straight in The Last Olympian. Because you're right, it does stand out. Do I have more thoughts on this? <laughs> I mean, there's a question on it. I'm assuming you were trying to transition to it. There's a question on it? <laughs> the Clarice and Silena relationship. Come on! Oh! <laughs> I thought that was a sneaky segue, Phoebe. <laughs> I mean, that was a totally intentional transition into this question from my friend Ashley. What do you guys think of the Clarice, Selena, Achilles, Patroclus parallel and what it means for their characters? Because we've mainly talked about it, like, with Luke being Achilles and, like, yeah. you know, we talked briefly about Clarice as Achilles, but we haven't even talked about the fact that Selena is Patroclus in this series. You know, the very purposeful parallel rather than the one that we are pulling out of this book. <laughs> well, I will say Clarice, personality-wise, does match up a lot with um, Achilles and the Iliad. So I think I mentioned in our last Olympian episode, like the entire arc of the Iliad is Achilles having to let go of his wrath. And he's very hot-headed, and he's very... Well, okay, no. Now that I'm even saying this, though, because I feel like a defining trait of Clarice that begins in Sea of Monsters is the fact that she does like care about her campers. She does care about the people under her command. And the thing with Achilles is, is he is willing to let his compatriots, not his direct reports, not his Myrmidons, not his people that he brought with him, but he's because he commands all of them to not fight alongside him. But he is willing to let the rest of the Greeks suffer for his personal glory because of his wrath and his fury. So it's interesting to me that Clarice is kind of painted in that way and cast in that role because, yes, she would be the character that's like the most likely to do it, I would say, of everyone at Camp Half-Blood. But I feel like she should she would have like grown enough to like not do that unless like regressing back to that is kind of her way of coping with loss because I'm assuming that they've I mean they mentioned they've lost campers so I'm assuming that she's had a lot of trauma from the fighting and from losing people already I've kind of assumed that Clarice made that choice partially because she knows that she is the most capable and like her cabin is essential should be essential to winning this fight but she knows that no one is going to listen to her and that, like, this is the Apollo cabin doing this is almost the last straw mm -hmm. where it's like, none of you were going to listen to me anyway if I went into this battle. Like, I should be on the front lines, like, being the one that you're listening to out there. But no one respects us enough. We have a really important role that we should be playing here, and none of you are going to let us play it. We'll just be, like, extra bodies, basically. If Clarice and the rest of the Ares cabin went, you know, half the people in the Ares cabin would end up getting killed and the reason would be that no one was listening to the Ares cabin because no one respects the Ares cabin and mm. so it'd just be putting her campers on the line and they would end up dying because no one was going to listen to them mm. yeah so in that way she would be kind of protecting her campers so it's kind of responsive like oh you're okay with using us but you're not willing to give us the credit and you're not willing to value us so we're going to teach you a lesson about this and, you know, and to that extent, like, this entire war is about no longer wanting to be used. It's interesting, though, because she doesn't, 
ever really like I feel like Clarice doesn't express an interest in glory all that much like I don't feel like it's heightened in any way more than anyone else's which is like a huge difference between her and Achilles Mm -hmm. I think she just wants respect and I think she wants to like earn her dad and like everyone else's pride in her um when it comes to Selena and Patroclus I really know nothing about Patroclus so (laughs) all I know about Patroclus is what I got out of the Hades game (laughs) (laughs) yeah so Patroclus is interesting because I feel like I I mentioned this offhandedly but I think a lot of people now their touchstone for like Achilles and Patroclus in particular is actually Song of Achilles which is a great book I think it tells the story Madeline Miller wanted to tell with it and it's beautiful that being said I do think when you're retelling stories you have to kind of pick and choose what to keep what to include and what what maybe gets a little changed when you're telling it to a new audience and retelling it in a new way and I think in her version Patroclus is pretty different from the version of him in the Iliad which is my nice way of saying they're very different characters between the two works Because one of the things that's not in Song of Achilles is, like, the main time Patroclus speaks in the Iliad, which is a little weird, but it would also fly in the face of her characterization of him. What I'm talking about is, in the Iliad, when Patroclus puts on Achilles' armor and leads Achilles' men out, he almost sacks Troy. Like, he gets to the walls and he, like, almost finishes the war. And the only thing that stops him is basically Apollo is like, no, and kind of smacks him and smacks some of his armor off and like stops him like a god has to stop him. And then some guy named Euphorbus stops him with a spear and it's like a mortal wound, but he's not dead yet. And then Hector comes up to him and then Hector lays a second mortal wound on him. And then Patroclus and Hector have a conversation where Patroclus, he proves himself to be quite like, he and Achilles are kind of cut from the same cloth in this speech. It's one of the best parts of the Iliad. It's so good. But he basically gives this whole speech where he's like, Hector, you fucked up. First of all, Apollo stopped me. So you wouldn't have even been able to stop me if it hadn't been for a god. Then this other guy stabbed me. And then you came in. Like, you didn't even, you weren't, you weren't even really the one to kill me. Like, it took a god. And yet you think you're better than me. And and you know killing me is going to make Achilles come for you. You know you've sealed your own doom just now. For pride, basically. And then he dies. And it's awesome. But Patroclus, as you might have gathered, is like pretty cocky. And he's also like made out to be like, you know, he's a peer of Achilles. Like he's not a wimp. He, he's a really good fighter. There's a reason why he's able to put on Achilles' armor and like fit it. And there's a reason why he's able to fight like him. And there's a reason why he's almost able to sack Troy on that day. And it's because he's trained with Achilles' like for a really long time. Like they're, they respect each other. Like they're both equals. And that's, I think, a piece of the character that Madeline Miller, for the, her own storytelling reasons, does not really play up. But what is kind of interesting is looking at Sel- like Selena that way in terms of comparing her to Clarice. I feel like Rick's intention was to show that children of Aphrodite are not weak. Children of Aphrodite are not shallow by default. And I think that's the work he wanted to start doing with this character. And I feel like to that end, casting her as Patroclus, casting her as somebody who in the myth is an equal in almost every way, and in some cases better 
term in terms of being just like a nicer person in terms of like being more understanding and more empathetic shows that there's so much more to selena than we've seen because she has that bite to her she has that drive she wants to fight she wants to give it her all like she wants to defend her world while we're talking about Clarice, charlie from of the eldest gods which i am actually guesting on in their episode on chapter eight of battle of the labyrinth had a lot of fun uh recording that one so hop on over and check it out if you want to hear me be much more silly and less serious (laughs) (laughs) we're we're not silly at all here And Fran, who we had on the podcast from the Vestian camp, pointed out that technically the stolen chariot, technically, <laughs> technically, technically, the stolen chariot should take place before the Battle of the Labyrinth because it was published as part of the Titan's Curse promo material, which I don't care and I'm choosing to ignore. <laughs> Yeah, because I just think it makes more sense and is better where we put it. Y'all, it doesn't make sense where Rick put it. The Demigod Files was published after Battle of the Labyrinth, and nothing in the book suggests that it takes place before Battle of the Labyrinth. But it is the first story in the book. That's the only thing. And also the fact that Clarice is 15 in that story, which I mentioned I don't think in the episode, I think I just thought, like, that doesn't make sense for her to be 15 because she's older than Percy. And so, like, yes, when you read it and, like, when you do your research, technically, yeah, it should take place before Battle of the Labyrinth. But it's just so much better. We know better. Where it belongs and also, like, where it belongs. It's so much better where it belongs. (laughs) (laughs) It's just so much better after Battle of the Labyrinth and because... There's nothing in the Demigod Files that says, hey, this doesn't take place when it's being published. I think it's reader's choice. My personal theory is that Rick wrote them in the order we put them out. He just released <laughs> it before Battle of the Labyrinth because he he had to for publishing reasons. Mm. We are more, our order is more canon than his version. <laughs> it's the right choice. It like, it makes sense there. For Percy's character, for Clarice's relationship with him, like, it just makes sense for it to be there. It doesn't make sense wherever it's supposed to be. Well, I mean, considering we read, like, Luke's diary in the middle of the series, it's like we're reading it just in the best order, not the chronological order. This is the machete order. We should read, you know, that's literally what it is. (laughs) My sister sent me a question. Well, she didn't send this intentionally. She just sent me a text out of the blue that said, I disagree with your podcast. <laughs> what was the timestamp on that? I remember you telling me it was like late. It was 8 a.m. <laughs> <laughs> She's talking about the Titan's Curse. We had just released our Titan's Curse episode when they're on the Chrysler building and he like wraps them up in vines and then gives them a whole speech about how heroes are bad and then for some reason lets them go and we were trying to figure out why. Dionysus lets Percy go, not because he wants him to prove him wrong, but because he just gave a speech about how he hates heroes and then was like, okay, you know what, destroy yourself. That's the text. I agree that it's not that he wants him to prove him wrong at that point. I think by the end of the series, he definitely does want him to prove him wrong. I think at this point, he also doesn't want Percy to destroy himself, though. I think he probably wants Percy to go out there and learn that heroes are bad like he wants percy to go out there and learn his mindset (laughs) at this point it's more just like this is what i think go out there figure it out for yourself you're gonna come back with the same realization that i had 
Thanks for the question, Sophia. <laughs> it's more of a statement. <laughs> You're wrong. <laughs> I wonder where the family resemblance is. <laughs> Something else that we talked about a lot that we wanted to come back to that we never did was Kronos's master plan. But I feel like I'm more interested in doing a little bit of a breakdown of like, now that we've kind of reread the whole series, where do we think the major turning points were? What do we think Cronus's plan with Percy was long term, like from the start? Like if nothing went wrong and they got everything they wanted? This is hard for me. My crazy theory? <laughs> I don't know if I want to start with the crazy theory. <laughs> do you have a non-crazy theory? Not really. It's- yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's like we know that he wanted Percy on his side. In that first book. I don't think he told Luke that he wanted Percy on his side. He must have just told Luke that he wanted Percy dead. Like, I, I can't think of any other reason why Luke does the things that he does. I mean, who knows if it was Luke's idea or Cronus's idea to put the shoes on Percy and then have the shoes be, like, cursed to drag him into Tartarus. I'm assuming that's a Cronus thing. What was his plan there? Because you asked this question. Yeah. My crazy thought is that while Luke thinks, oh, that's just going to kill him, Kronos is thinking, I'm pulling him down here with me. That was what I was going to say, because I'm just imagining it's just like dragging him (laughs) into Tartarus. I just want to talk. Like you pull him down there and then it's like your only way out of here is me, basically. Mm. And then he's got the bolt and he's got Percy. He's still in pieces down there, but like his essence is down there and can talk, apparently. You know, maybe he's still, maybe he's thinking the sort of possession route that he goes with Luke or maybe he's thinking something else Mm. but I do think that his plan was use Percy somehow and the bolt once he gets down here because Percy's gonna want to get himself out of there maybe he just wants to trap him until he turns 16 I mean you keep him down there you keep feeding him you know your evil little thoughts the way you do with Luke Luke's up in the in the upper world doing your bidding Luke Percy's down here slowly turning to your side he turns 16 you come out with like a crazy weapon and Zeus's bolt which has been down there all this time Mm. that's the only plan I can think of that makes sense for the first book I don't think in book two Kronos is thinking of possessing either Percy or Luke yeah I think he just wants to walk out of there his uh being has been collecting in the casket the golden fleece will return him to his true form either way he's thinking of them both as weapons but I think in his mind Percy has been like the stronger weapon that he wanted from the beginning and then you know he realizes that Percy is an unreliable weapon and Luke is at least consistent (laughs) and so when they lose in book two now he's like okay on to plan b and I I almost think that Luke proposed to the Ophiotaurus thing to be like no actually let's make that plan c it's kind of enters the denial phase he's like no 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 I can I can think my way out of this yeah I'm guessing with Luke, he was able to find success in kind of like indoctrinating a kid. So I feel like he was hoping to replicate that success with Percy. Yeah. Although I think this does lead us into the Luke question. Sure, I can ask the Luke question. (laughs) M asked, what do you think Luke represents politically? I think he represents someone starting with progressive ideas, but fell down the alt-right pipeline. I almost don't want to answer this. (laughs) I think it's a perfectly valid question. And when you have a, a revolutionary character like Luke, it makes sense to try and find a parallel in your like present society. But I 
don't think there's a perfect one-to-one in our political landscape for Luke, and I'm reluctant to assign him anything. Just because it feels like simplifying everything that he is to assign him like something he represents. In response to this idea of him, I don't think Luke's goals can be compared to alt-right ideals because he is so against Western civilization. <laughs> yeah, it's an interesting... Because I think on one level, the comparison works for me. Although it's kind of interesting because I guess that's where you get into a bit of like death of the author stuff. But I do... The, the kind of alt-right pipeline when these books were written wasn't as big a thing. So I don't think it was like consciously done by Rick. That being said radicalization of young disillusioned men is very much a thing always what does interest me about this is in light of our luke being from westport conversation (laughs) so you're talking about how there's a particular kind of disillusionment that comes from being somebody who feels as though they are owed the world and not getting it And I do think that is very much where a lot of people in the alt-right pipeline are coming from. Like, they feel entitled to so many things that they haven't gotten, and that's why they're angry. Those things being, you know, things they're not entitled to. So, like, in that way, I think it reminds me of that a little. But I also feel like, like, as Phoebe kind of said, I feel like he's a little too anti-establishment to be a direct parallel because i feel like the problem with the alt-right is they don't want to disrupt the system they want to create even more rigidity within the system versus with luke that's not really the case because he wants to dismantle western civilization entirely but his main problem is he's not digging deep enough this is what i mean is because there are so many things that just contradict with each other if you try to say he represents this he represents this if he represents anything he's someone who fights for a cause but so much of it comes from personal rage and desires that what's right gets lost in what feels good like revenge without considering how the outcome will serve the cause he's supposed to be fighting for in the first place like i think that's what happened to luke like so much of it was individual anger and resentment that he was fighting to get retribution for rather than it feeding the cause or community. Mm. You know, he may have found himself under the thumb of something that you can make comparable, but it's just not, there's not like a perfect one-to-one political, mm. like this is what Luke represents in our society. Like he he doesn't, he's, he's just a guy. He's, <laughs> he's such a specific character that you like can't pin him down as like, he represents this to me. Yeah. It's interesting also, now that I'm thinking about it, because I feel like so many characters in this series do defy archetypes, which is really interesting considering most of mythology is archetypical. Like, it's very much based on archetypes. But, like, all of the characters in this, they don't feel like archetypes. They feel like real people. They're not, it's not a, this is not a myth. It's not a fable. Um, if we want to contradict ourselves completely, we have uh, another question from someone <laughs> named M. <laughs> Okay. E.M. this time. About Ethan, who we said only represents things. <laughs> Some characters are more narrative devices than others. <laughs> this can still be true. Just because um, you're a narrative device doesn't mean we don't love you. M said, just on the subject of Ethan theories slash parallels, 
I've had this thought for a while that Ethan kind of represents the road not taken for Nico in Battle of the Labyrinth and beyond, with the justice slash vengeance choice Nico's represented with by Minos at the start, and the couple times Percy worries about a captured demigod being Nico that turns out to be Ethan, and then how Ethan ends up joining Kronos when that was a worry about Nico for the whole book, and then how Nico kind of decides to embody the justice side of it at the end of the war. Which I loved this because I was like, why didn't I think of that? I know. I was about to say, that's a good <laughs> analysis right there. I'm into that. I love that. That's great. Yeah. Because it's true. Even in even in sort of Hades, Nico and Ethan show up at the same time. And like, Nico is such a character that's like defined by his relationship to justice. I feel like for like the rest mm. of the series, all, all three series, plural. Thank you, Em. <laughs> I literally have nothing to say to this. It's just good. It's... <laughs> It's just true. <laughs> okay. The last thing I wanted to circle back to. First, I was curious if you had any more thoughts now that we finished this series on Western civilization and its role in this series. What a question. <laughs> the thing is, I'm going to ask this question at the end of every single Literally one of these wrap-ups. Yeah. I was thinking about this earlier. I was like... I wasn't thinking about this question specifically. I was thinking about what is the status of Olympus at the end of each mm. series, because, but it's kind of the same question. <laughs> it's at the core of literally every, like the entire series. It's going to be major when we get to Trials of Apollo. If you haven't read Trials of Apollo, I'm hunting you down. <laughs> <laughs> I have like sub questions, if that helps. Sure. So the first sub question is, so how does our understanding of the West develop through the series? I don't know. The Last Olympian really like throws a wrench in everything, doesn't mm. it? Well, I think one of the reasons why The Last Olympian throws a wrench into things for me is that I feel like the West, over the course of the series, kind of develops into this amorphous thing that just stands in to represent all civilization in a way, in a weird way. Yeah. Where it kind of comes to mean like everything we've ever known. I feel like it just had to kind of keep ballooning through the series but something I thought really was really interesting though is I remember I kept pointing out a few things that don't quite add up that show like the cracks in the foundation of our own perception of societal perception of the west being the myth that I talked about in our first episode and one of the big examples I was using is Minoan civilization which was the civilization that predates um, the most ancient of the people we know of the ancient Greeks in the Mediterranean and Something that's really interesting um, is that there's a lot of theories about uh, to like where certain myths come from, but the theory on the labyrinth and the myth of Theseus is that it actually comes from and is inspired by Minoan civilization. For example, the word labyrinth comes from like the word labyrinth, which is a two-sided axe, which is like a major thing in Minoan culture. Like that's what, that's like one of the things we keep finding. And there's also the bowl imagery. If you've seen um, pictures of the frescoes at Knossos, which is like the main palace, there's this beautiful fresco of bowl leaping there. Like bowls and all of that was like a huge part of the culture. Um, the administrative centers of all of these places on Crete were like these big, we call them palaces. Sir Arthur Evans said they're palaces. Who knows if he was right? He's probably wrong. He was wrong about most things. They're basically these huge buildings, like stories and stories tall and like so many hallways that would have maybe appeared somewhat labyrinthine if you were unfamiliar with that level of architecture. You can see how a lot of this stems from Minoan culture. So I think it's really interesting 
that this thing that's apparently been running under the entire world of the Percy Jackson series is this never-ending, ever-growing labyrinth that probably predates Western civilization in this world, if it comes from the Minoans, because that would predate probably the Greek gods existing in the Mediterranean. I don't know. I just like this constant reminder of like, there's way more ancient weird things that don't fit into this and to like how we, our world works that, you know, we can't reconcile. So I enjoy that as a symbol of all of the things that are underneath this, this idea of the West. Yeah. And I guess by the end, because we have like Luke's ideology or at least mm-hmm. pieces of it were right. But we're, we have that whole speech from him in the first book about how, like, Western civilization is a disease. And it's like, we very carefully avoid that part of his motivations in the last book. <laughs> yeah. We're just like, we need to protect Western civilization. And then, like, just forget that Luke said all that, please. <laughs> like, <I don't... laughs> it is interesting that, like, we had to bind the West to something, to, like, everything you've ever cared about ever. Reality instead of letting it exist as it was, as something worth defending. Even the narrative realized that it, it wasn't worth defending on its own. Yeah, it, it ends in like a messy place, which like the Heroes of Olympus won't help. <laughs> <laughs> Charles Apollo will do some some things, but from what I remember, the Heroes of Olympus is only going to make things muddier. <laughs> I will say, I'm curious how on the TV show they're going to handle a non-white Luke being like, the West is sucks and a white blonde Percy being like what are you talking you about, talking about? <laughs> <laughs> were there any more questions you wanted to hit yeah I've got one last question this one comes from seaweed brain podcast <laughs> who are they is Percival the greatest love story ever told it's okay you can be honest <laughs> I mean does it tell it's hers <laughs> So, if I'm going to answer this question seriously, I don't like love stories. (laughs) Usually, I think the best ones are a slow burn, and this is one of the best slow burns. Romances are not necessarily about, like, the love story to me. They're more about, like, working through character. This is the most ace take on romance ever. (laughs) (laughs) You're asking the wrong podcast. (laughs) Um, I I love the amount of drama that Percy and Annabeth have. I I love how confusing it is. It just, it feels real. But is it my OTP? I don't even know if I really have an OTP. Like, I said one for the bit, but like, maybe a ten in rows. Maybe that was it. I don't know. That's so 2012 of you. Thank you all for listening to Monster Donut. It's been a wild ride to get to this point. Yeah, thank you for listening this far. And thank you for, if you sent in a question, thank you. If we didn't answer your question, I'm very sorry. We got a lot. I was surprised. (laughs) (laughs) Next time, we're going to be reading The Singer of Apollo and The Staff of Hermes. The Singer of Apollo is inside a stupid book called, like, Boys Read or something. (laughs) Um, If you haven't read it. (laughs) You're Um, not a boy, I guess. Yeah, we're not allowed to read that one. (laughs) But so we're going to be reading those. Those two take place like in the 
two or three months between Last Olympian and The Lost Hero. If, I don't know, I don't know what art I'm gonna make this week, but I'll make something and it'll be up on our social media. <laughs> you can find us at PJOPod on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. Oh, also, I, we posted a, a tour of Westport while we were both in town. So if you want to see Luke's hometown, like mm-hmm. you can you can see it. It's on our TikTok and on our Twitter. And at some point, I'm going to put these episodes on YouTube. Yeah, thank you all so much for making it this far and sending in your thoughts and analyses. It's been so much fun to get to talk about this with all y'all. And Yeah, I want to make like a hashtag. Because I've seen people make art after the episode and like just posting their thoughts. I kind of want to make a hashtag where we can like all... Hashtag Monster Donut I just searched. I mean, you look up mon- hashtag Monster Donut and it's all a bunch of people being like, look at this hashtag Monster Donut that I got at the donut <laughs> shop. We need like an actual one. Um, if anyone has any ideas, <laughs> just let us know. Okay. Bye, everyone. Bye. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.